Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Howdy, mountain bikers. Thanks for being here, and welcome to episode 141 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I am here, as always, to help you find out more about mountain biking, how to get on the trails, keep you stoked, and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks for being with us this week, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Now, in this episode, we are chatting with Sid and Maggie about being professional mountain bikers, chasing the race scene in their van, breaking bones, crashing out, sponsorship, their very successful YouTube channel, and their very exciting MTB board game called Send It. Yes, they have made a board game, and it looks pretty awesome. Now, I've been following Sid and Maggie for some time on their YouTube channel, tuning in just to see where life has taken them and stuff, because that's what attracted me to their channel in the first place. You know, it's real life. It's down to earth. It's not a glamorized channel where everything is sunshine and roses all the time. You can relate to them. The issues they have on the road uh, and chasing the race scene are the issues that you and me can have. You know what I mean? Uh, And there's fun times, there's laughter, there's great riding, awesome trails, but there are also cuts, crashes and tears. And it makes for a really, really good YouTube channel. Now, we also chat to them about their mountain bike board game called Send It. The idea for the board game came about after Maggie had a pretty nasty crash. And I've got links in that to the show notes. You know, and he had to spend a lot of time recovering and not riding his bike, which is totally alien to Maggie. Maggie's been racing professionally for a number of years. So this is something really hard for him. So after playing board games and stuff like that to pass the time, he was surprised to find out that there were no specific mountain bike board games out there that he could get his hands on. So him and Sid decided that they would simply have to make their own and send it was born. So we chat about all that good stuff, plus much, much more, of course. Now, if you want to get your hands on one of the board games, you can simply go to the show notes. There's links in there on how to do that or go to the description on your podcast app and you will see a link there or simply go to senditboardgames.com. Now, the board game is being funded via a Kickstarter campaign, which has been hugely successful. And from the date of this episode going live, you've got about six days where you can get involved in the Kickstarter campaign and make sure you get one of those board games. Go and take a look at it, folks. It's well worth it. The game looks absolutely fantastic. So without further ado, let's get Sid and Maggie on the show, see what it's like being a professional mountain biker, chasing the race scene, and what this board game is all about. Hi, Sid and Maggie. Welcome to the MTB Tribe podcast. How are you guys doing this evening? We're good. It's morning for us. Yeah. <laughs> I was it's like, wait, started. evening. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot. I just got you out of bed, and I'm just about to go to bed. <laughs> oh, no, it's not that early. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So you are in – where are you based at now, then, with the whole COVID thing that's going on? Yeah, so we're in New Mexico, in Taos, New Mexico, and Mackie's parents live here. They His parents actually usually live in Thailand, and um, they're back as well, as is his brother and his brother's girlfriend. So we've got a bit of a crew here at the house, and <laughs> we're all just kind of um, waiting it out to see when we can get back to normal lives <laughs> and normal things. places where we live, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a nice place to be with family and stuff, eh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's oh, been it's... really great. 
Yeah, we're really fortunate in that it's, you know, beautiful. It's sort of a ways out of town. So we can walk out the door and hike. We can walk, head out the door and ride. You know, we're, we're very fortunate to have a lot of access to outdoors. And, you know, aside from not being on the road, it hasn't been too crazy of a change for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Working from home, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're working from home instead of working in a van or on trails, so mm-hmm. it's a bit of a change. Well, the internet's a lot better, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I've been watching on your YouTube channel. How's the shed build going? Have you finished yet? You got electric and all sorted? Um, we've finished like the exterior build. We're still working on where we're going to put stuff inside and some of the setup things actually proving to be the most difficult part so far because we kind of argue about every little thing i'm not sure argue is the right no not argue it's not it's not there's no animosity but it just requires a lot of discussion yeah we want it to be like perfect and so we're definitely spending as much like we're spending way more time planning the inside than we did the outside because we want it to look really nice and we want it to function really nice and it's uh, it's some some big decisions we have to make because we don't really want to go and undo everything after we do it. Yeah, it's kind of a blank slate right now, which is cool. So we have um, a lot of directions we can go. So but this part is proving a little slow, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but also really fun. This is the part I'm definitely the most excited about. Like, you know, we had to do the structural part so that we could get more space, but it was really the inside that I've always been excited about. And, you know, where are we going to store bikes and where are we going to store parts and how are we going to make it all work properly? We're really stoked. We've literally never had a place to like work on bikes before. Sure. Usually just outside or <laughs> in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's cool because I'm sure you'll work some of your videos in there for your YouTube channel and stuff, which we'll get into a wee bit later. But you, you kind of setting it up in, uh, inside so that you can film stuff for your channel there as well. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's the hope is we'd like to be able to do live streams from up there. Um, we're trying to figure out how to, to get decent internet because we have great internet in the house, which we only got like a year ago. And so we're like, yes, we can live stream. And then we're like, oh, great. Now we want to live stream in the shed. So how are we going to, you know, get the internet up there? But I think we can pull that off and, and make that happen, um, which would be pretty cool because it'd be nice to have a space that's sort of our space that we can set up that we can live stream that we have you know bike related things in the background instead of you know whatever wall or cabinet is behind us in the house here so that's the ultimate goal is to have a nice space up there that we can live stream that we can record stuff that we can build bikes that we can work on bikes um just a, a space that we've never really had before so cool it sounds it sounds great it's like a a man shed kind of thing (laughs) yeah yeah no it's definitely going to be our sort of dream dream garage bike build (laughs) very cool and we'll get into lots because you obviously for people that don't know you have a really good youtube channel you basically live out of your van there you race you um have a board game coming out a mountain bike board game which we'll definitely get into because that's very exciting and looks insane uh, but we'll get into all that but first of all like 
Mikey, you're such a good writer. Like I've been following you guys on YouTube for quite a while, and you've raced professionally, and you still do race professionally, I suppose now. But when did you first step on a bike? Can you remember your first interest in, in a bike? You know, I don't remember it, but the story my parents tell is that when I was about three, we were at a you know at a friend's house, and one of their kids had a bike that was about the right size for me, and I sort of wanted to try riding it. And so they put me on it. And then for my, my fourth birthday, I got a bike and very quickly just took the training wheels off because they, they weren't my thing. So I started riding fairly young, but you know, my family wasn't especially into it. My dad rode a bike to work, but it wasn't like, uh, you know, either of my parents were serious cyclists or mountain bikers. So I sort of got into it and then spent the next couple of years riding for fun where I could. We actually lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, so it's not exactly a uh, a bike mecca or a mountain biking it's mecca. It's, mm. it's all below sea level. Yeah, <laughs> the whole city is basically below sea level. So, um, you know, we'd, I'd ride occasionally in the summers when we'd go places, but it wasn't until we moved to New Mexico when I was 13 that I really got into it and, and just loved it. You know, loved being out in the mountains and pushing myself and and getting to kind of see things at a slightly faster pace than you do when you're hiking, which I think I really like. So, and uh, yeah, you know, it sort of went from there and and here I am, however many, almost 20 years later, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. Did you come through the whole BMX thing or anything? I did not know. Um, there's not a BMX track here in, in Taos. Um, I actually got introduced to mountain biking by, a couple who runs after school mountain bike camps and, and, and summer camps. They do both hiking camps and mountain biking camps. And Susie, um, who's one of the, the people who run those camps, actually raced professionally mountain bikes. And so when I sort of showed some interest in mountain biking, he was like, hey, you should come try this first race. And, and I did. And her and her husband, Sean, who also raced, never professionally, but, but he was a serious racer as well. The two of them got me into it, brought me to my first couple of races. They coached me for a number of years and really helped me get into the mountain biking world and get into racing. Um, and then I sort of took it from there and, and have continued it since. Wow. And did you know at that age that you were really into the racing thing did, or did they kind of push you into it or was it something you always wanted to do yourself? You know, so I did my first race at 15. And I had just done like the, I think it was the summer camp or the after school camp or something. And they said, hey, you know, you seem to be enjoying this. Do you want to try a race? There's one just over the mountain. It's like 45 minutes away. And I was like, well, yeah, sure. Let's let's try it. That'll be fun. And I went over there and I got second in the junior beginners, um, which obviously when you when you do well and you feel like you're good at something, it makes you like it more. So mm. I was all excited and, and went and did another race that year moved up a category which at that point was junior expert so i ended up for my second ever race racing the same distance as the pros and uh let's just say it was a bit of a rough race for me and what sean and susie said is they were like when we found out that you had signed up to race junior expert and race the same distance as the pros we knew either you would never touch a bike again or you would love it and be into it and like race seriously and and they were right it was the latter so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm glad I didn't accidentally set myself up for never touching a bike again. <laughs> <laughs> and this was 
This was XC, right? This was XC, yeah. I didn't do any. Let's see, I raced XC for the first couple of years and then got more serious about it my my last year as a junior, which was 2005. Um, went to nationals that year, got fourth at nationals in cross country um, as a junior. And then the next year moved up to semi-pro. So this was 2006. Raced semi-pro for that year. Um, won a, a short track national championship and then moved up to pro at the end of that year. So 2006, I got my pro cross country card and raced cross country seriously for the next seven years until about 2013, at which point I started kind of dabbling in enduro and raced sort of 50-50 cross country in enduro. And the next year just transitioned completely to enduro. So 2014 started racing enduro, did that until last year basically and then last year we decided together to we made the decision together to branch out and and do some other disciplines race some of these big bucket list races like bc bike race and some of the whiskey off-road series or i'm sorry the epic ride series because they're just they're fun big races with awesome people and and really well run but they happen to be cross-country races. So we decided we didn't want to limit ourselves to just enduro. And so at that point, started just racing a little bit of everything and, and have really enjoyed that. And that was obviously the plan for this year as well until everything changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of people out there missing the racing scene, that's for sure. Yep, I know I am. <laughs> yeah. And said, how about you? I know you also were riding bikes as a kid. How did you get into the mountain bike scene then? So both my parents actually rode mountain bikes. My dad was definitely one of the like early mountain bikers in the 80s, like riding cruiser bikes illegally in the National Forest and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so I kind of grew up around it. I, I ran competitively. I did like track and, and cross-country running in high school. So I didn't race mountain biking except a little bit in the summer like I would do like our local race and um I grew up in Ohio um it is hot as a dickens in the summers I didn't really enjoy it in high school it was just like this it would races always started at noon it would be like 95 degrees Fahrenheit I need to work on the Celsius <laughs> translation while you're talking but um you know just really really humid and it would just it would just be really miserable so I was kind of like, eh, I don't know what this. Um, yeah, it was sort of my parents' thing at that point, and and I was a runner, and I was I was planning to run in college, but I got hurt and just ended up um, riding bikes more seriously. And at that point, um, I got into collegiate racing, which is an awesome program in the U.S. It's not um, an official collegiate sport, so it's not NCAA or anything like that. It's a club sport. It's, very low-key, super fun. Um, that's how I met Mackie. We were two of the seven people on our collegiate cycling team. <laughs> and um, I was able to like race a couple mountain bike seasons, uh, raced a road season, a terrible road racer. <laughs> <laughs> get it at all. Um, and that it's all, all across country at that point. And then when I graduated college, it was 2014. Um, started doing a little bit more enduro which at that point was a little more my speed I think and sort of transitioned ended up 
ended up racing pro my first season because the amateurs had to like wait for a really long time to go. So I just signed <laughs> up as pro, which you could do in enduro then because it was like a totally baby sport in 2014 in the US. Like nobody was really doing it. So you kind of do whatever. And um, yeah, that was kind of how things started. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it, it was funny because it's one of the things I wanted to ask you guys, because I wanted to ask you how you met, because you's, for people that don't know, you're married. But I wanted to know if you met through mountain biking, if that's what brought you together, because so many of these lifestyle sports, it brings people together and people end up getting wed from mm-hmm. things like this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was wondering how you met and how you got together. So you obviously had a passion for the bikes and you clicked when you met and stuff like that. Is that how it went or did it take a bit of time? Well, we actually, I was dating somebody else when we met. And so we were, you know, we were just friends for the first year, year and a yeah. half. And I ended up breaking up with this, this other woman at the time. Um, and we I had, I think she broke up. She broke out. You're right. She broke out with me. It's right. <laughs> oh dear. No, no, no. She. So this this girl I was dating broke up with me. Um, Sid at that point was with somebody else. We, you know, we, we were we had, very good friends for a long time. Yeah, we were really good friends, and then we ended up getting together and sort of had a an on again, off again first year because I had graduated and Sid was still in school, um, and then. Yeah, then we got together and have been together for a long time now. Yeah, we decided almost it's, nine years. I think it's over nine. Oh, yeah, because it's May. Yeah, yeah. All right. So over, over nine, nine years, years, and we've been yeah. married for two and a half of those. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool, guys. Like, do you have any friends that has that has happened to as well? Because you see where I'm from, back home in Portrush, Northern Ireland, it's like a wee surf town there, and all those guys have met or other halves through surfing or the local surf shop, you know, that's the way it works. Yeah. Uh, do you have any kind of riding buddies like that as well? I don't think, I'm sure we do. I think. Well, I mean, Rachel and Kyle are a good example. Yeah. 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 Um, um, no, we definitely, I think it's interesting kind of, there's sort of two paths, either people met because they were both interested in the sport or they met, and one person, usually the guy was into it and got the girl into it. And so we've seen a couple examples of, I feel like, that working surprisingly well. I think a lot of times it doesn't work well, but there's definitely, like, well, I feel like Tess and Steve and yeah. Alex and Kelsey are yeah. both kind of in that position where. Yeah, they got together before and then one of them was into mountain biking and introduced the other and now they're both into it. That's cool. Mm-hmm. With that, it's funny, we actually get that question a lot. People will say, you know, how do you get your generally girlfriend or wife in the mountain biking and yeah it's sort of some interesting to see people's assumptions because people will definitely like ask Matthew they're like how did you get Sid into mountain biking it's like and I'm oh. like nope she started mountain biking younger than I did <laughs> yeah <laughs> even though I didn't know that I kind of figured that said that you were riding bikes before you met Maggie I don't know why but I I just assumed that was the way it was there but I also assumed that it was mountain biking that is how you met and got together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so cool. But you would you would not believe, said the number of people, you know, the girls I've had on the podcast from Ireland who are really, really good racers now and good riders and stuff. But 
their introduction was through their boyfriend and you would be yeah. surprised how many of them their first bike was a downhill bike and were just chucked mm-hmm. down black trails and stuff it's unbelievable wow really that's... i think for the people yeah. that that works for it works like really well yeah. you know i think like if you can get over the fact of your partner trying to teach you something like you're obviously destined to probably be pretty good at the thing because mm-hmm. i think a lot of people have a really hard time being taught something by their significant yeah, that's that's really the biggest piece of advice we give people. We're like, if you want to get your significant other into it, put them on a really nice bike. Like, it better be nicer than your bike. Go out, rent a bike, borrow a bike, steal a bike, whatever. Get them on a really nice bike and then have them go out with someone of their same gender that oh, isn't like, yeah, like, have them go out with friends or whatever, not with you. And don't give them any advice, like let them go out and experience mountain biking with their friends or even with your friends of, of that gender and and don't be involved because it's so hard to like share your passion, but not come across as like obnoxious and know it all when you're trying to teach somebody you care about. It's just mm-hmm. almost impossible. <laughs> that, that applies to everyone. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That was great advice because... Back in Ireland, we probably just go, ah, there you are, you'll be fine. Just take her down the hill, you'll be gone. You'll be grand. <laughs> <laughs> like it said, that works people, for some it people. certainly weeds out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the people who it works for, they're probably going to be really good. But I think a lot of people end up not getting into the sport because. Traumatized, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and we, we're, we're all about getting as many people into the sport as we can it's just such a it's such a great sport and it's such a good group of people which yeah, is cool. for people to be into it <laughs> <laughs> for sure now when you're sort of looking at the racing thing um and you're living a van basically most of the year and you follow races that's what you do professionally and how is that lifestyle how's that van lifestyle because it's it's very popular at the minute um we love it i mean it's I think it's interesting because there's been this huge growth of van life as a thing recently. Mm. Um, And it's all about really expensive vans with lots of wood in them. And, and that's great. You know, if people want to do that, we, we fully support that. But for us, van life is very much a means to an end. You know, we, we, our ultimate goal in life is not necessarily to live in a van. We like houses too, <laughs> but you know, at this point it just doesn't make sense to have a house. Like if we had a house, we would only be there. I don't know, maybe three, four months out of the year, we'd be paying for it. The other eight and we'd be on the road so much that, that we'd just be wasting money basically. So for us having a van makes perfect sense. We, we live out of the van, we live on the road. Um, and we're fortunate in that my parents don't mind us using their house here in New Mexico as kind of a home base. So we bounce through here every once in a while and, and store parts and stuff here. But yeah, I I mean, being on the road is awesome. It's you, you know, you wake up somewhere new all the time and you get to go and sort of hang out and ride trails before you race them, after you race them. You really get to to know areas that you know, otherwise we'd be there for like maybe two days or three days. We'd get there and we'd pre-ride and then we'd race and then we'd have to leave again. And this way we actually get to know an area and sometimes meet some of the local riding community or at the very least just get to know 
the other trails that we aren't racing on that that's really hard to do when you aren't you know there for an extended period of time and it's it's really just a blast it's so much fun to to be out there and just kind of have everything we need with us and and be self-sufficient and just be kind of on the road mm-hmm. yeah it's very cool and it looks very cool but what i like about your youtube channel is it's it's not all sunshine and flowers you know there's the other side of it as well and i know living in a van isn't as glamorous as a lot of people think you know you've got you've got the miles behind the wheel you've got finding somebody park the thing you've got space you're showering all that kind of stuff comes into play right what advice would you give somebody wanting to do that thing like real life advice <laughs> um just do it or don't do it <laughs> i think if you're sucked in by the glamorous photos that you see on Instagram or this concept of freedom, etc. Like I think you need to have a good think about it because I don't think those are necessarily the reasons to do it. I mean, we just really, we really love camping. Yep. That's good. Um, and so we really love being outside. I, I see a lot of people build their vans as if they're going to spend all their time in their van <laughs> and you're going to go crazy. It's a box, you know, especially like, if you're used to being in a house where you can be inside and like actually have space. Exactly. Like a van, you're, you know, you're yeah, talking you like the size of your bedroom. If you're <laughs> enjoy being outside. Yeah. And so I think if you're doing it for the right reasons, for like financial reasons and stuff like that, and you enjoy car camping already, um, I think you're going to be okay. I think it really is for us. It is more like camping than, I don't know. I think people have this idea of like, Oh, I'll just park my van on the side of the street. And like, this will be great. And those are the people you see burn out really fast. On <laughs> yeah. Some people do it. And, and power to them, you know, but a lot of people are like, wait, this kind of sucks. And I'm constantly being hunted and having spot to spot. And, um, you know, I don't know. I, that's not, fun to us so we just go out on BLM land which is Bureau of Land Management in the U.S. and it's just acres and acres and acres of public land and you can park somewhere usually 14 day limit but also no one's checking <laughs> so <laughs> 14 or more day limit uh, you know so you can stay in the same place for a long it's one of those weird ones. You're doing it for the right thing because you're chasing the race scene. Like, what is it about racing that makes you want to do that? So the race thing is actually making you just want to live in a van and do stuff like that. Like, what is it about racing that you just love so much? That's a great oh, question. Yeah, it's a question. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very competitive um, in terms of I like to push myself. I like to test myself against other people who are, are racing seriously. Um, and so that definitely, that definitely is what draws me to it. I think honestly, it's primarily the testing myself, um, aspect. I don't think, I don't think it's impossible, but it's very hard to work as hard to go as hard to train as hard as we do. If you don't have an end goal of racing, like it's, Mm -hmm. you know, there are people who can do it, but I, I don't think I could. And there's a community aspect as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our, our best friends we've met 
at races or through mountain biking, I generally at races really, um, or at, at mountain bike events. And so the ability to go from race to race and event to event, um, we, we see a lot of the same people, we get to meet new people, but that community aspect of mountain biking is really important to us. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's such a good thing too. The the whole mountain biking community is really, really good. Do you just find when you're when you're in the van for quite a while, you just kind of think to yourself, "Oh, I wish I could go home for a week," and then when you are home, you're home for like two or three days, and you're like, "Oh, I really wish I could be out in the road racing again." Does that kind of thing happen? I know what happens with me. Yeah, I would say we. It takes a while for us to get tired of being in the van, yeah. and it it usually is when we're really tired from a race or injured where like you sort of want the stability of being in a house and you don't want to have to climb up on top of your van to go to bed like we we sleep on top of the van in a rooftop tent so oh, you really do you? yeah so it's awesome you have to climb up a ladder to get to the bed and like when you're injured you don't want to climb up a ladder like there's things like that that but I, but we can go for a long time and we figured out ways of making things a little bit easier like after we did BC bike race last year. Knew we were like, it's gonna be really hard to go back to van life after BCBR because we are gonna be exhausted, and we have to edit a video for each day. So we have to edit like seven videos in a week, and <laughs> and we're gonna be exhausted <laughs> again. And um, so we just like got to go water and bathrooms and all of that for like eight days and cell service and and that was great because... we just posted up whereas normally like sid said we'll go out onto to public land and just camp off the grid so we have to go and get groceries and go and get water every couple days and, and we like that but we knew when we're going to be really really tired the last thing we're going to want to do is deal with all these extra logistics so instead we were like let's just set ourselves up for success let's be in a place that has water and bathrooms so that we can take those stress aspects off of our plate and and be able to recover a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, and you know, people will ask this and they always ask this about, about van life and stuff like that and about being a professional racer and how you actually make an income. Um, now, I know you guys have a very good Patreon supporter network and stuff behind the YouTube channel and you just get sponsored and stuff. Do you mind sp- chatting about your sponsorship and how that helps you yeah for sure so we until we started youtube all of our income came from sponsorship pretty much yeah yeah from about 2014 to 2018 we were that was all 100 percent. like we survived off of sponsorship yeah we basically Mm -hmm. especially when we were just starting like we i mean we had like some decent races but it wasn't like we were really getting sponsorship we were doing photo shoots and like content creation and that kind of thing. usually working like specifically for the partner. Like, we'll give you these 10 photos a month in exchange for you know our sponsorship payment basically. Um, and as we've moved to doing YouTube, kind of creating our own brand, it's more of a model of getting paid to represent those sponsors without necessarily like doing specific for them if that makes sense yeah we're we're not content creators for a brand we create our own content and and brands that want to partner with us or want you know want to have 
access to the people who are in our community, they come on as sponsors. And, you know, that's a much nicer for us that works a lot better because we get to build the community that we're excited about, that we care about. And, and while building that community, then there are companies that are like, Hey, we, we like what you guys are doing. We're into what we're doing. We believe in the inclusion that you guys promote. We'd like to, to partner with you so that people see that we are also into these same or have these, these shared values, um, which is a lot. Yeah. It's a lot more enjoyable for us. And we don't feel like we have to just be, uh, you know, shoot, we need to get X number of photos for such and such a company. We're like, no, we're going to do our thing. And then we're going to work with these brands that have shared values because they're also into getting more people on bikes or introducing more people to racing. And, and that's, I think, a really cool situation. For us, it's a much better model than like a factory team model. I think it's interesting in the bike industry, everybody wants to be on a factory team. Um, however, a lot of the athletes that we know who are actually making a decent living are kind of doing their own program basically whether they're doing youtube or whether they just have a big instagram following and they're able to leverage that um that tends to be a lot more lucrative i think yeah obviously we we don't know what everyone else is making yeah there's exceptions like obviously you know some of the big names they're they're getting all their expenses paid and they're getting big paychecks from the companies they work with but yeah, I mean, let's, yeah, let's, let's count those off. What are there five or 10 people who are doing that right now? So yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, it's just a super interesting time to be doing what we're doing. We've definitely had a lot of sponsors reaching out saying, well, we had all these plans like to launch things via these races, but that's not happening. So like, how can you help us? <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of cool. Cause we still, you know, we still have the audience, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. we're not racing. And that, I think that would be advice I would have for anyone who wants to be an athlete is figure out a value that isn't entirely dependent on race results. Like no matter how fast you are, like you see that even like among the top percentage of racers like the ones who have figured out a brand that goes beyond race results are more successful yeah because otherwise there's going to be some new kid who's 10 years younger than you who's been riding their bike since they were one and you know is an incredible athlete and happens to be really talented and they're going to start beating you at races so if it's entirely reliant on race results somebody is going to come and take yeah yeah or you get injured or yeah anything like that just look at like emily batty like she didn't have the year that she wanted with world cup racing this past year but my bet is she didn't have any trouble with sponsorship she has a huge following people care about her whether she's you know 40th or third yeah they really still care so Mm -hmm. i think that is is definitely a smart move for any athletes well it's to diversify your income like you know it shouldn't if you only have one income stream if something happens to that income stream like i mean honestly sponsorship that was part of why we started youtube is we were like we want to not be a hundred percent reliant on sponsorship because if the bike industry has a bad year or a bad couple of years that's you know they're going to cut sponsorship budgets and if that's the only way we make money we're going to be out of jobs. So we're like, okay, how can we create other forms of income that still allow us to do what we love, which is racing and training and, and building community that are not dependent 100% on sponsorship? And 
and that's where YouTube fit very nicely for us at the time and continues to. Yeah, it's really cool. It's so interesting because, Sid, I, I, um, I read a post you done on your blog about social media and what mm-hmm. the brands expect from you as a sponsored writer. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's a tough position to be in, having to follow, you know, all those brand requirements and stuff. That was really interesting reading. And did you find after that that you just went down this route of letting sponsors kind of reach out to you rather than the other way around? Um, I mean, we still do a mix of both for sure. But when we reach out to a sponsor now, we, you know, what we offer is more like, you know, we get this many views on our YouTube channel. We can incorporate your brand on YouTube this way. Like we can do this as opposed to like, we can provide photos for you or we'll tag you in a hundred Instagram posts. Um, I think we really followed our gut a lot with social media in that like even I would say back like 2015 like the thing to do was to just like tag all of your sponsors in every post that you did like here's me shredding on my bike like at 25 brand you know Um, (laughs) and that was like what every sponsor wanted and I think we were probably some of the first athletes that were like we're not going to do that we're just not going to like, it's not good for you. It's not a good look for us. Like it doesn't work. And I think we, we lost some sponsors through that, but gained others who were like, Oh, like like you have a lot of integrity with your audience. Like, you know, people don't feel like they're being sold to people. Don't think this is a, like just a list of sponsors. Like when you talk about a product, it's because you want to talk about the product. And I think I think that got lost a lot on Instagram. I think Instagram is a very a platform right now because it's so saturated. Like when we post stuff on Instagram, like, and we do, you know, we track our links and everything like that. Like we don't get the click throughs or the sales through Instagram that we do through YouTube. And I think that is largely because people just got so saturated with ads basically. And that's not just mm-hmm. sponsored athletes, but I think sponsored athletes, in the mountain biking world is certainly part of that problem of like uh, you know every post I post is a billboard and I think we at one point kind of put our foot down we're like we can't do that like you know this is still well nobody's like they're, they're just not interesting like if every post you're trying to sell something to somebody but they just feel like they're you know they're scrolling through like one big advertisement and that's like that's not why people are on social media. They're on there to connect with other people and to find like-minded individuals and to share their excitement about, in our case, mountain biking. And and we want to encourage that. And so then when we do talk about a product, it's because we have a reason to. You know, we may say, hey, we're really excited about, you know, our new bikes this year. And here's what we like about them. Here's what we're excited about. Like, sure, that's our sponsors like us to do that. But we're not going to say, you know every single day we're going to post something about Niner bikes. Like Niner understands that when it makes sense and we have something to say, we'll share it. But otherwise we're not going to just beat people over the head with, with, you know, tagging Niner in every single post because that's not what people want. Yeah. It waters down what you're actually trying to say. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's the way to go. People are following your lifestyle and what you're doing. They're interested in you as human beings not necessarily what bike you're riding or what latest gear you have, you know. So I think that, that certainly longevity definitely is much better that way, you know. 
sure. Well, we definitely know they're not following us because our van is fancy. Yeah. So I, I, I figure for people who haven't, you know, who don't follow us and haven't seen our van, let me just give you a quick rundown. It's a 2006 Ford Econoline, which are like the classic van you see for painters and plumbers in the U.S. They're like short. They, they don't have a tall roof and it's long. And so we can't stand up in our van. Um, we sleep in a rooftop tent on top of it. We don't have a toilet. We don't have, you know, running water or anything. We, the, the whole back is converted into a garage so we can put dirt bikes like motorcycles in there. And then our bikes are on, our mountain bikes are on the back. So it's very much like a utilitarian, just carry the equipment that we want to be able to train effectively and race effectively and, and make things work. We're not, you know, the only wood we have in it was a, a pretty awesome, like covered in set of drawers that Sid's dad helped us build. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not in there for winning any Pinterest contests. <laughs> we're doing it because it works because that's like, you know, it, it gets us on the road and helps us save money by not having a house that we don't live in. That's real life, huh? Exactly. <laughs> Now, let's shift gears a little because um, I want to chat about your board game, your mountain bike board game, which is very, very exciting. It's very interesting. But I think the story behind the board game is very interesting as well. And I'm sure you get fed up, Mike, about people asking you this. Um, no, about the- not at all. <laughs> it's, it's a good reminder to me how, what I should have done differently and what I will do differently in the future. Um, so yeah, the, the crash that you're referring to was, um, we were at a friend's house in Arkansas and they had just bought this house and it's a super cool house and it has this great porch deck area. And, you know, being the, the, they run a trail building company, so they see everything as trail potential. And one of the things they noticed was that their porch drops off, like, essentially into a place they could build a trail. So they're like, great, we'll just have this this porch drop be the start of our trail. Um, and it's a big it's a big drop. It's probably 15 feet. So it's like four or five meters. And, you know, they they had some friends over. We were there. We were all hanging out. Um, and we were going to do the porch drop and I was like, cool. And I, I glanced at it and I was like, yep, that should be fine. No big deal. Um, and I basically wasn't paying attention and didn't take it seriously and wrote it completely wrong. I, I wrote it as if it was like a steep roll as opposed to like kind of a big huck to flat. And I halfway down to the landing, I was over the front of my bike and landed hands first and separated my, I'm, yeah, I got an AC separation in my left shoulder, stitches in my chin, concussion, possibly broke my forearms. I never got an x-ray of those to check. Um, but it was by far my worst crash and, and also probably my stupidest crash. It just, so many things that could have been avoided, I, I didn't avoid. I just completely blew it. Um, and that was kind of a, a real interesting moment for me um, because I realized, you know, despite having raced professionally for 15 years or something at that point um, that I could still really, really mess up if I wasn't paying attention. And it was a good reminder of that. 
and made me spend a lot of time thinking about what are the aspects that go into proper preparation for a big feature like that. You know, you, you can't just go in and say, oh yeah, whatever, it's fine, no big deal. You need to take it seriously. You need to figure out how you're going to ride it. You need to decide on your approach and decide on your body position and all this stuff. And that was sort of the inspiration for this mountain bike game. Yeah. You know, because it's not like you hadn't done something like that before, because when I, as I was chatting to you before we hit the record button there, when I initially seen that footage, I didn't think it was you because I've obviously followed you on YouTube. I know how good a rider you are. You've done plenty of stuff like that in the past. And when I seen the footage, I was just, I, I just didn't know who it was. Um, but then <laughs> when I seen it later on your channel, I was like, no way, really? Um, I, so I, I don't know. I, when I initially seen it, you know, I just thought that guy really just didn't know what he was doing. But you obviously do. Um, so it's interesting when you say that no matter what your experience and your ability level, when you go to do something like that, you should always pretty much think about it and think how you're going to do it because one, one small mistake can have really bad consequences. Yeah. It was, it was really interesting seeing the, the reaction afterwards is, you know, I had a lot of people say that they were like, how, how did you screw that up so badly? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that and just, it was a combo of things. I, I just done a, a 50 mile race, um, in, uh, Arkansas and a 50 mile cross country race. I was tired from that. I'd been riding a lot. It was the end of the season. I was setting up the drone to get a drone shot. Like there were all these things that I just wasn't, I wasn't taking the drop seriously. I was focused on other things and it was a, it was a very serious reminder that you have to be paying attention when you're riding your bike. And, you know, we, it's, I think a good example is so many people, you talk to them and they're like, Oh yeah, I hurt myself on a green trail. And it's because they, they aren't paying attention. They're like, Oh, I can ride this. It's not a big deal. And they stop paying attention and then something happens. And so this obviously was not a green trail, but I was still, I wasn't, I was treating it. Yeah. And I think it really can happen to anyone and it doesn't have to be a green trail or anything, but that moment that you are thinking about something else. And yeah. You assume that you have control of the situation because it's an easy trail. Or it's a trail you've ridden a bunch. Or I think in Mackie's case, like people who don't ride as well as him had already hit it with no problems, you know? And I've and, done features that size before. Like oh, there yeah. are all these things of like, I know I can do this. And so I stopped worrying about it. And, and that was where I went wrong is I, I stopped taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it was a, it was a learning experience. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But good things have come out of it. So your, your downtime, you started to play a lot of board games. You were getting into that. It got the mind thinking. Can you take us through the pro the, the, the progress of from your crash to actually thinking let's produce a mountain bike board game. <laughs> yeah um it was a it was kind of a funny funny path but as you said i i started playing more board games um we were with friends in arkansas and i was trying to stay away from screens because i i had you know i never got diagnosed with a concussion but i concussed myself 
Um, and so I was trying to stay away from screens. I didn't want to spend a ton of time watching movies or, or staring at the computer. So we ended up playing a lot of board games and I've always enjoyed board games and have gotten into sort of, I would call them board game light games where like they require a little bit more strategy and in, in understanding the rules than say, sorry, or monopoly or those really simple ones, but they're, they're not super complicated. I don't love the, the really ridiculously complicated There's ones. Some really nerdy board games out there. Yeah, they are. They take like an, know about most of these. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but those those are games that take like an hour to even learn how to play before you even start playing. And I don't, mm-hmm. I, I I want games that like you can learn quickly, but then there's still strategy and there's still, you know, ways to sabotage each other and, and you're having fun, but it's not just like a roll the dice and see how many spaces you move. So we were playing a lot of board games. I was thinking a lot about what I had done and, and how I had screwed up and we were joking with our friends that we were staying with because their their brother, uh, Alex's brother, was staying with them. And he kept he he kept saying, send it till you end it. And this was his phrase. And, you know, I I basically sent it and didn't end it, but like seriously hurt myself. So we decided that maybe send it till you end it was not the best thing <laughs> to uh, encourage people to do. So we started thinking about it and came up with the phrase evaluate and send it, which sounds totally ridiculous, but it's true. I mean, you really, when you're thinking about doing a feature that's hard for you or that's that's difficult, you should really evaluate, am I ready for this? You know, what can I do to make myself more likely to succeed in this? All these kind of things. And that was sort of the start of the idea for the board game. So Sid and I sat down and started discussing you know, hey, what should what aspect should there be? Do you want to, you know, should there be training? Should there be like, obviously, there's going to be writing, obviously, there's going to be sending it. But what are the other aspects that we want? And we had never designed a board game before, um, obviously, and just didn't really know what to do. So we threw out all the ideas, created a cardboard cutout prototype of it, which was uh, kind of boring and looked terrible but you know it gave us something to work with and had some people play it and even non-mountain bikers were and and people who didn't like board games were like wow that was that was actually surprisingly fun we're like well hey if we can convince sid's uncle who doesn't like board games and doesn't mountain bike (laughs) to play this game and he enjoys it then like maybe we're on to something here so over the next four months because this crash happened six months ago and, and about a month later was when we came up with the idea so we spent the next three four months throwing ideas back and forth printing out prototypes playing them getting feedback and then when we felt like we had something that could be an actual game we put out a call on social media and said hey who knows somebody who's a, a really talented artist who's a mountain biker who'd be able to help us illustrate this game because neither of us is our illustrators at all. And a number of people mentioned Christina, who's a sketchy trails on Instagram. And so we reached out to her and she was like, I love board games. I love mountain biking. This sounds like a cool project. Let's do it. So we hired her to do the artwork for it. And, and, you know, that sort of brings us to here where just what, two weeks ago, not even two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, we launched the project on Kickstarter and hit our funding goal in under eight hours, which was really amazing. And 
you know, we've been sort of working since then on figuring out how to get shipping as cheap as possible and have, you know, EU and Canada friendly shipping so that people aren't paying customs and just all these logistics that you don't really think about when you're creating a physical product. Like we've created lots of digital products, you know, we make videos and we've done a podcast here and like we've done that, but man, a physical product is a whole, whole other beast. It's really, really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. It's weird. You know, and the board game for people that haven't seen it, there seems to be quite a lot going on there. Like that must've taken just so much time to design and sort out and organize and really to be honest looking at it you would not think that this was your first board game that you had produced because it looks amazing like it really looks good like you must you know you obviously have found a a childhood talent or something here because it's it's, (laughs) it's too good just to be a mistake you know thank you very much it definitely was a you know, it was a joint effort. We got a lot of input from people who played the game and gave us, you know, feedback and ideas. You know, one of our patrons is a is a video game designer, and he was like, hey, I'd be willing to play it if you guys want me to. And so we were like, yes, please, sent him a, a printable one. So he printed it out, played it, and sort of gave us some feedback on game design stuff. I mean, it's all stuff that we have no experience with that we've never done before but we really wanted to try to make it happen. So we just, we went, we got feedback from anybody we could. And like we said, hired Christina to do the artwork so that it looks really nice. And we're, we're just really excited. We're really excited to get it out to everybody. Cause I think it's, uh, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm biased. I know I'm biased, but we've heard from lots of different people that it's actually quite fun and they enjoy the strategy and it helps bring them together with their mountain biking friends even when they can't ride. And and that was our idea. It's like, obviously, we all want to ride. We love riding. That's why we're mountain bikers. But sometimes you can't ride. And that might be because, you know, you're injured. It might be because you're tired because you just rode or the weather's not cooperating or, you know, or COVID-19 is going on. But <laughs> regardless of the reason, like, if you can't ride, this is a fun way to still sort of feel like you're you know, you're not riding a bike, but like you're you're doing the mountain bike thing. You're talking about crashes that you had and you're talking about features that you're going to send. And like there's all this stuff you get to tell stories and you get to hang out with your friends. And, and that's what we like. That's that community aspect of mountain biking. Mm-hmm. And is it is the bike and, and the kind of what you do and how the, the game works? Is that all of your experience as a mountain biker? Did a lot of that go into it? Oh yeah, definitely. We, we sort of wanted to make, we wanted to find the balance of like over preparing for a feature. Cause like we all know the person who stands at the top of a feature for like 45 minutes and just like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm going to do it. Oh, well, you know, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm going to go check it out again. And, and that's, that's frustrating and, and it never generally works well. Like they don't, they, they aren't successful when they do that. So you're breaking <laughs> out that balance of like stand the top and look at a feature with, you know, what I did, which is not take it seriously and just go for it without really paying attention. And so like, what is that balance between those two and, and how can you, how, what can you do that's most efficient to get yourself ready for a feature? 
And and we've had really cool feedback from people who've played prototypes of it where I've talked to them a couple of weeks later and they're like, I every one of my rides is different now. Anytime I come to a feature that I'm that I've been thinking about that I'm considering, I go through the checklist of like some of those cards that you had. Like I, I visualize successfully sending it and I, you know, I, I check the landing and I check the takeoff and they they go through this whole checklist that they're like, I never really thought of it before. I always felt like it was literally rolling the dice to see whether or not I would succeed. But now they have this whole framework that they can fall back on of like, okay, there are ways to make myself more likely to succeed. And, and I'm going to do that. Yeah. So cool, man, isn't it? Like it, it's really weird the way things happen sometimes. It really is. <laughs> I would never have thought that, that crash would have, you know, led us to create a mountain biking board game ever yeah and it's so cool you know it's so cool i think seeing it coming from somebody like yourselves because like you say you're very much involved in the digital world with youtube and everything else and the whole social media thing and then to produce something like a board game like a physical board game that you open the box you take the pieces out old school it's just it's so cool to see it coming from somebody like yourself you you know what i mean it was totally like we realized how much we enjoyed board games because it allowed us to sit down with our friends and not be on the computer and not be on the phone. And there, there's actually a rule in the rule book that says don't text and ride. And anybody who is, you know, who's looking at their phone during the game has to pick up a crash card, which, you know, crash <laughs> cards slow you down. You don't want that. And and that was really our goal. We wanted to encourage people to be present and to be hanging out with their friends and to be laughing and telling jokes. And and so that was the goal, like, you know, get people physically together to spend time with one another, not on their phones, not on their computers, not in front of a TV. Yeah, it's very cool. And I'm, you must be super stoked on how the Kickstarter campaign has went. Um, like that must have just blown your mind. Yeah, it was it was crazy. <laughs> it's kind of insane. <laughs> so what's the what's the next step then? When when are you thinking of producing or or how do people get their hands on one? What what's your kind of your next step after this? Yeah, so like we said, we successfully funded, which means we are going to to print a first run of the game. Um, the we have a couple of stretch goals that we're excited about, so that's essentially hitting funding goals that are higher than the the initial goal. So the initial goal was $25,000. At that point, we were, we, you know, we sat down and did the budget and everything. We can produce the number of games we need to, we can get them to everybody. Um, But then now we have a goal at 40,000 where we're going to add a card that our backers get to choose. So they're, you know, they've been throwing out ideas. We're going to put together our favorites and let people vote on it. So we'll add a new card. At seventy thousand, we're going to put um, 3D miniatures of the riders instead of like 2D sort of cutouts the way we have right now. So there's these different things that if we can hit these different goals, we can make the game better for everybody, and and we're really excited about those. So anybody who's at all interested in it, if you back it now, that helps us get to those goals and and actually make the game cooler. That's definitely your way of guaranteeing that you get one because we don't yeah. really know what the next move would be if we will try to do distribution in 
you know, more mainstream stores, or if this is, you know, this just is a Kickstarter. Yeah, it, it may be just a one and done, like, we do it on Kickstarter. If you don't order it, then then you aren't able to get this game. So this is the opportunity. <laughs> um, as soon as the Kickstarter is done, it ends in early June. We will decide on a manufacturer. We're talking to a couple different ones right now and and start the process of getting them all the artwork and making sure they're, you know, the prototypes that they print are up to snuff, you know, up to the, the standards that we want the game to be. And then we just recently actually um, talked to a fulfillment company, a shipping company that's going to help us get games into uh, distribution or warehouses on a couple different continents. So we can provide customs free shipping in the EU, US, Canada, Australia, and China and New Zealand. So wow, we're trying wow. to like, you know, people still pay the shipping, but we've got the shipping costs as low as we possibly can. It's, you know, 10 to $15 in the US, I think 15 to 20 in, in most other of those places. And then there's no customs on top of that. So we're trying to just make it as affordable for people as we can because we realize the game is not cheap. You know, it's not like walking into a, a big box Target. store. Yeah. yeah. Like in the yeah. U.S., you can walk into Walmart and buy a board game for 25 bucks. But that's because it's a boring board game, <laughs> A, mm -hmm. and B, well, because Walmart can buy 100,000 yeah, of them at a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and we can't do that. So it's, you know, it's more expensive because of that. But uh we, we promise it will live up to expectations. <laughs> cool. Like, it must be such a change for you, you know, having to look at production and having to look at distribution and patents, all this kind of stuff that goes into it. I have a little bit of a background in that kind of thing, so I understand it. Um, like, is that just blowing your mind, all that stuff at the minute? Oh, it's totally nuts. And, like, the difference between manufacturing in the U.S. versus manufacturing in China and you know, then you have to pay the shipping to different places. Like, there's just all these things that go into it that we have had no experience but with. Luckily, I think we started a lot of these conversations pretty early. I think oh, yeah. It was, just it was like January. January so, yeah. that it, was out. it has been kind of a slow process, but at this point, it seems like we've found a couple manufacturers that would work, and then it just sort of comes down to who gives the best offer, and it depends a little bit on whether we hit that goal of having the miniatures or not because they mm -hmm. do different things that way but well and we yeah. sat down before we did the kickstarter and and you know i was like this is awesome let's make it happen <laughs> passion project and sid was like okay let's think about this for a second because like it we, we've spent some money already just upfront costs of some of the artwork and stuff but we she was like don't you know we need to set a realistic funding goal so that if we hit it, we can actually produce the game without losing thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And and that was a, it was oh, very, huge ask. yeah, no, it was, <laughs> it was a very helpful thing for her to remind me of like, this is a cool project, but like, are you really willing to spend thousands of dollars to like get it out there and lose money on the project? And I was like, you're right. We need to, you know, we need to sit down and just be very honest about at $25,000 as our funding goal. Will we be able to produce this game? and not lose money and and we were like we figured it out so that we could we built in a little bit of a buffer so that if things go wrong we can still deliver the game and and yeah it's been really it's just been so weird projecting because like we've never you know for our videos we obviously discuss 
ideas for the videos and different things and thumbnails and stuff, but it's not like you're, you're planning out six months in advance, 10 months in advance, trying to figure out if you're going to lose a huge amount of money. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Now, this is a question that I want to ask you. Um, as I know, the amount, the amount of time and sacrifice it takes to run a product or to run a company, if this thing becomes very successful for you, and you start shipping them and getting them produced and everything else. And then there's maybe a, a Mark II and a Mark III down the line. Like, have you thought about how this may change your van life and what you're actually doing now as far as the racing thing? We've discussed it a little bit. Um, and I think at this point, both of us, were we love racing and we love being on the road and we don't want to change that. And... It's, it's really interesting with all this manufacturing fulfillment, you actually don't end up touching the, prod, the product at all. Like we have a couple of prototypes that we, you know, that we bought and they're extremely expensive. Like I wish we could just send everybody a prototype who ordered one, but since they cost like over $200 a piece for the prototypes, we're like, yep, that's nobody wants to pay 250 bucks for a board game. Like that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously we're, we're playing the prototypes. We're making sure they work well. We're making sure they look good, but the actual product is, you know, it's, it's manufactured in China. And then we work with different warehouses and fulfillment companies to have it shipped to warehouses. And then they ship it out to the Kickstarter backers. So we actually are not touching that product, which is good because, at this point, we've sold over 500 copies, so it would be uh, it would be a lot of putting things in boxes, which we don't want to do. Um, but I, I I like to think that this is something we could continue to do from the road if it were successful, and if we were to do you know other versions or expansions or whatever. Um, I, I think we could continue to do that remotely while being able to to continue our our. Know, lifestyle of being on the road and of training and racing so it's very interesting you know the whole thing and how it could actually change things have you thought about you know people getting in contact with you and customer care and all that kind of thing like has that even come into mind somewhat thought about it yeah <laughs> i mean we're the, the company that we're probably going to do fulfillment with um they fortunately take care of of that side of things in terms of packages getting lost or packages being damaged or anything like that. So they have a customer service team that does that. And, and obviously we pay a premium for that, but mm -hmm. to us, that's worth it. We want somebody who has experience with this, who can quickly take care of problems and make sure to get back to people within 24 hours. Whereas sometimes we're, you know, off the grid for a couple of days because we don't have internet and, and we want to make sure that we're not, not giving people a bad experience of the, the company or of the brand because we weren't able to, you know, answer a phone call. So yeah. I think a board game, you know, you're sort of lucky in the respect that once you, you know, like obviously we'll be putting a lot of work in to get the product like correct from the manufacturer, but um, you know, and assuming the prototypes they send us, like at that point, I feel like the thing that's most likely to go wrong is shipping related, which Obviously, like the distribution center will have a better mm -hmm. ability to deal with that. You know, it's not like a, a, you know, a bike part or something that 
you know, needs to be warranted and yeah. like that, or, or a food item that can go bad or like, <laughs> you know, so I think it is manageable. Yeah. Mm. No, that's cool because it would be a send to take you away from what you love doing and the passion you have for the racing mm-hmm. side of things and everything, you know, and it would become more of a hindrance than a help at that stage maybe, but you seem to have it well organized there and well thought out. So that's what comes from a good crash. Yeah, and I mean, we've always sort of like with other products we've done, like merchandise and stuff through our channel, like, the only thing we send out is stickers and that's like enough of a pain in the butt for us to know that like, okay, we don't want to have anything to do with like distribution of physical items. Like that's not, like that doesn't work for us. You're going to do it way better than us when it is not our job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good way to look at it. So what's in the future plans for Sidden Maggie for your brand then? What, what is planning in the near future? I think we've kind of sort of put our plans on pause for a bit because we just don't know what's going to happen. We definitely want to keep racing. And as Matthew was saying, we want to, you know, explore more disciplines and do, you know, a wider variety of races. And I think our kind of dream with the channel is to basically, I don't know, like kind of build an archive of content about like the best mountain bike races in the world. Um, and that, because that's fun for us to do different things each year, to not just keep doing the same events. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we don't know what racing is going to look like this year, so we're just playing it by ear at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> we basically just hit pause and accepted that this year we will hopefully race towards the end of the year, but that may not even happen. So. That's where we're like, okay, now we have an opportunity to work on send it and to try to make that happen and to work on our shed redesign. Yeah. And make videos that we enjoy making, even if like we know that that's not necessarily like why people come to our channel. I think everyone's very forgiving right now of the fact that just things are different. You know, you can't, can't do race videos because there's no racing. <laughs> we can't just keep you know, churning out the same kind of videos. And I think like all the videos we've been doing about building out our shed have been super well received. And I think people are, I think they can kind of relate to that pause and that, you know, doing projects that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have time for. And, and yeah, I think it's, it's we can't, the there's not, there's literally nothing we can do about it. You know, like there's, mm-hmm. it's an absolute definition of a situation that is out of, our control yeah don't be dumb yeah. but i mean yeah i mean the the u.s government is not exactly doing like a bang-up job of uh <laughs> dealing with this so it kind of looks like we're in it for the long haul yeah right now yeah yeah and it's it's hard for everybody you know but at least you're getting stuff done there and you're you're doing mm-hmm. other things like you say you normally wouldn't get time to do so that's pretty cool off the yeah. end of it as well trying to find the silver lining you know we're we're all in a rough situation so make the best yeah, of it we're very lucky in many, oh, many ways lucky. like we yeah. do have somewhere to be like being full-time in the van right now would be pretty untenable i think yeah. in general like a lot of small communities are like nobody's coming in like we're closed like the uh, campgrounds are closed gyms are closed like um so really we're hard. very lucky to have somewhere to be and 
somewhere where we can have projects and and fun stuff too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So how can people best find you, get in contact, follow what you're doing? We, we try to make fun. it pretty easy. <laughs> if you search Sid and Mackie, so that's S-Y-D and M-A-C-K-Y, um, that's our Instagram handle, that's our YouTube channel, that's our website, SidMackie.com. Um, yeah, so... Sid Mackie, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to spell it right. Which yeah. is a <laughs> we get lots of comments all the time of people who are commenting. Like, you know, like they're literally like two inches on their screen below the name of our channel and they're still spelling both of our names wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, how? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I would, I would probably spell said S I D, you see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. People like to put an E in my name, so yeah, yeah. or do I E? Yeah, but I think really any variation, Google will find us at this point. It's so, true, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us. Yeah, you're, you're, that was you're more super than welcome. fun. <laughs> like it's great to see what you're doing, and you know, you're stoking so many people out there as far as the mountain bike thing goes, and it's just amazing what the mountain bike community can bring to people's lives and it's people like yourselves and other guys doing similar things you know that make it so much fun and keep the community together so um great stuff and i hope 2020 goes well for you and i hope the board game goes so well for you um it's something different i'm sure there's nothing like it on the market is there no No. we we looked around and couldn't find anything which is we were like okay, we'll just buy a mountain biking board game. This will be fine. And then there wasn't one. So we were like, well, I guess we have to create it because it doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And you know, it's weird, isn't it? Like, as soon as I, it's something that we all should have been looking for in the past. (laughs) I would have thought so. Yeah, it's so strange. But here, good luck. I hope it goes well for you. I'm sure it will. Your Kickstarter campaign's going super guns. So uh, hopefully you reach those other stretch targets and uh you can get things rolling there that'd be really cool thanks very much we're we're crossing our fingers <laughs> all right have a good uh, day folks and uh, get on with that shed build yep, thank you thanks very much I hope you enjoyed that episode, folks. And Sid and Maggie, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great to have you on the podcast and chat about everything you've got going on there. And uh, I hope you all the best for 2020 season and that the race season kicks off and you can get back out on your van, what you love doing so much, and get back into that community. Now, folks, if you want to know more about Sid and Maggie, if you want to get your hands on one of the board games as i say you've got about five or six days to do so just simply go to the show notes mtb-tribe.com you can find out more there you can find out links to sid and maggie's socials and everything that they've got going on there now if you enjoy the show and you want to support the show the best way is by subscribing rating and reviewing us on apple podcasts every one of your ratings helps boost us on apple's algorithms and helps spread the good word about the show to more people if you're not on Apple, you can also find us and subscribe via Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and all other good podcast platforms. You can also visit the website mtb-tribe.com where you can find the complete bike catalogue, listen and download every show. You can also subscribe there and get one email per week with a quick and easy link to listen to the show and a short synopsis of who the guest is that week. You can also get involved on social media at MTV Tribe on Instagram and Facebook, take screenshots and help share the show. 
Now, the show grows organically. We don't deal with sponsorship or anything like that. So please share it out with friends. Let them know about the show and we can get more people off the sofa and onto the saddle. And hopefully things are calming down a little bit with this COVID thing so we can get more people out on the trails and get enjoying what mountain biking can bring to their lives. So thanks so much again, folks, for tuning in this week. I do appreciate it. I do appreciate you getting in contact. You can find me simply at uh, info at mtb-drive.com. Send me a quick email or get in contact. PM me via socials. I do answer all emails and I will get back to you. So until next week, I hope you can get out on the bike, stay safe on the trails, and as always, stay MTB stoked. <laughs>